0: The Team Never Quit podcast is sponsored by Navy Federal Credit Union. Navy Federal Credit Union likes to reward their members for using your credit cards. Learn more at NavyFederal.org. Team Never Quit
1: Radio.
2: All right, everybody. Welcome back to the TNQ podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luttrell.
0: What's up guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Team Never Quit Podcast. My name's Andrew. How's everybody doing out there? We hope you guys are doing good. So glad you guys are coming out every single week to listen to the show. How's it going, guys? Mm -hmm. Uh Staying busy, bro? Mm -hmm. Very busy, I bet. Yes. (laughs) Okay, we've got a Patreon question today. Last week was the first day of fall, even though it doesn't feel like it in Texas. We got like two days of like, you know, a little bit of it.
2: We only have two seasons. We don't have, anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but question of the day, candy corn or candy canes? Candy canes. Do you like candy corn at all? No. Niels, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I'm I going to go with the candy canes. My wife's a big Christmas head, and uh, so Christmas starts probably in about June in our house. So yeah, <laughs> I'm going to go candy canes.
2: As it should.
0: Yeah. Can, not,
2: yeah,
1: not a candy <laughs> yes, corn guy. When
0: I was a kid, I thought candy corn was great. And as I've gotten older, I've kind of realized it's it's garbage. It's not it's not great at all. <laughs>
2: yeah. Looks cool sitting on a... It looks pretty in,
0: a, in the jar. In a bowl or yeah. something. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for the Patreon question. If you want to ask your question, join us at patreon.com slash teamneverquit. You can get access to exclusive content, some really cool swag even some ad-free episodes. Make sure you guys check that out. We've got a great guest in store today. Niels Jorgensen is a former New York City firefighter of 21 years, a 9-11 survivor, as well as the host of the 20 for 20 podcast, a show highlighting 20 heroic stories about 9-11 for the 20th anniversary of the tragedy. Welcome to the show, Niels.
1: Well, thank you, sir. And thank you, Marcus, for having me. It's really an honor to be here. Appreciate it.
0: Oh, so
2: obviously everybody's, it's not going to be hard to pick up pick up my man's accent from one of arguably the most patriotic cities. That's what I love about people from Jersey and New York. They just it's like th- it's a thing across the country. It's like you know when I talk, you know I'm from Texas. Yep. You know when people from New York talk, you know they're from New York or Jersey or Atlanta. You know, unfortunately, some states they don't have the luxury of having their own dialect or their own accents.
0: That's true. I don't ever feel like I sound Texan, but. Pretty sure it's there somewhere. But then you got to appreciate the humor because
2: Niels lives in Tennessee.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, I'm, I'm now a damn Yankee. And uh, yeah, I, I, my wife's teasing me because I've been I've been toning down my New Yorkness so I could fit in a little here out in the hills. But uh, it's funny when I flash back 35 years ago to Army basic training, I was down Alabama and uh, there was five of us from New York City and uh, 195 guys from across the rest of the country. And they used to make the New York guys sit down and they would give us like 25 cents a word. They'd like, say say coffee, coffee, say ball, ball. You know, we would really pour it on just, to, and they would just crack up laughing. So uh, yeah, it's, it, accents are very, very interesting. Uh, I grew up with an Irish mother who's off the boat. and She still has her her Irish brogue at 70, 74 years old. So um, I'm a big fan of accents. But I uh, appreciate it, guys.
2: Oh, yeah. No, that's the best part about New York. They're proud of their accents. I guess – and there's a difference yeah, between yeah, there's so a difference close, between New York definitely. and New Jersey, too. I mean, I don't know if people know that. Oh, yeah. Now. That's a big deal.
1: Oh, yeah. Northern New Jersey, Southern New Jersey, even differences. It's, it's funny. 25, 50 miles changes the dialect a little bit. It's very interesting, actually.
2: And now – I can only imagine when people in that town you live in Tennessee when when you start talking they just got to look up from what they're doing.
1: (laughs) Well, that's I'm still learning to to say y'all and not you guys but uh, yeah, there's some good folks here and uh, that's part of the reason I moved here for a quiet country life. Um, You know, when you're When you have, uh, I guess, a bunch of significant emotional events, right? Not to sound weak, whatever, but after a while, you just get saturated. And sometimes being in a quiet place is is best for the the mind and the soul. So I I found a beautiful little spot here. It reminds me of where my mom's from in Ireland, and uh, I spent my childhood Uh, every summer when I was a little boy at my grandma's farm in Ireland and I feel like I've come back full circle now at 53 and uh I'm living out that farm dream that I always had so I'm blessed by God to get that chance and uh really enjoying every minute of it um I miss I miss the good of New York and the great people of New York that I love up there but uh it's not the city I was born in unfortunately uh you know politics aside it's just being mismanaged and uh It's sad. It's sad. I was actually, uh, I was attacked. Uh, I work as a stagehand now in the TV and filming union since I retired from the fire department. And I was coming off the subway about uh, two years ago, just before all this stuff kicked off with the virus. And I probably wear an American flag hat that I'm wearing right now, Uh, you know, being a veteran and just loving loving this country as a first generation American. And four young men attacked me, um, somewhat race-based, and they just didn't like my hat. And they were cussing me out and letting me know. And, uh, you know, one guy was just jumping up and down in front of me, throwing, throwing punches toward my nose, but not landing them. And another guy was filming it. And this went on for a few minutes, and it just kept getting more and more agitated. And, you know, being a former cop, I spent my first two years as a New York City police officer. And then 21 and 21 and a half and fire. But uh, I figured a cop car come by in a minute and they must've been out in a call. So things just kept getting more heated, more heated. So I finally got up in this young man's face and I started screaming at him. And I said, all right, let's go. You're right. I'm this and blah blah. And whatever he kept saying that was, I said, you're right. And I just work 18 hours and I need to go home and sleep for two so I can go back for 18 more, but whatever it is I did to mess up your life and piss you off, let's get it done. And his friend realized I must've been crazy. Or a cop or something, and he grabbed them and said, "Oh, we just filmed people to get them to, you know, to get them to beg us for mercy and make us look good, so we can have bones and street cred." And I just shook my head, walked away, and I was like, "I prayed for these young guys because I man 'Man, they're 19 and they're lost and they're going nowhere.'" And I got in the car and uh, I was, you know, two—I guess at that point, two in the morning, whatever. my wife could hear my voice, the, the stress and the panic, and I, she goes, you okay? I said, yeah, I was almost not. And, and I said, uh, we were just down in Nashville, you know, central Tennessee, doing the tourist thing. I said, you like it there? And she said, oh, I love it. I said, good, get used to it. We're going. And I uh, came down here, bought some land. I'm trying to build a house. And I, I I hate retreating. I hate ever running away. But I realized that it was time late in life now to regroup and come come somewhere a little quieter. And uh, and and come where there's folks. Not to say there's not great people in New York and New Jersey, but more folks that I can relate to down here. There's less of that division and anger and politics. It's it's God family country down here, which which used to uh, inhabit most of the United States. I know it still exists in Texas uh, and, oh, yeah. and Tennessee and and you know a lot of states in the Midwest and Upper West, but but it just seems like some of the some of the uh, states where the big cities are. There's just this, just, just I don't know, like this twilight zone kind of world where what used to be important and what used to really matter is now just out the window and everything's upside down. So uh, things make sense for me here. And uh, I, I think I want to spend the rest of my life here, to be honest with you, Marcus. It's, uh, it's a peaceful place, real peaceful place.
2: It is God's country.
1: <clears throat> well, yes, sir.
2: We covered kind of high level, your your background, but... Let's give the let's give the listeners a a little a little deeper dive on where where you came from and just walk us through the your career, if you will, and then what you're doing now because what you're doing now is you know it'll it'll touch everybody's heart.
1: Well, I appreciate the kind words, Marcus, and you might have to rope me in because I'm, I'm I'm Irish and we like to talk a lot. So <laughs> if I veer way off the target, if if I veer way off the target, feel free to pull me back in. Uh, I'm, I'm a proud uh, New York born and raised boy. My, my dad uh, is uh, a New York native. His father was from Denmark. His mom, her parents were from Ireland, and she was orphaned quite young. Uh, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, and my dad decided to bring us out to the country at the time, which was Staten Island, and uh, pretty much was raised there. Spent a year of my teenage years in Ireland because my dad was a New York City firefighter, uh, finished up. In the Air Force as a crash rescue firefighter, and then went on to New York City for 34 years. He was fighting a uh, terminal cancer at 38 years old, and they uh, they asked him to be a test pilot for a uh, a new radical cancer drug in 1978. And this man went to work. They they pulled him off the truck, put him in an office, and um, he he got four and a half years of chemo, and he went to work every time. You know, he would be on it. Actually, he'd go go to work, come back, get his treatment, be violently ill for a few days. And once he was able to get up and about, he'd go back to work. So after he got his time, his base pension time, my mom thought maybe he wouldn't live. So she decided we should move to Ireland. And uh, her safety net was over there. She's from a huge family. And we spent about 10, 11 months. And my dad said, nope, this isn't America. I'm sorry. I'm American. My kids are American. We're going back home. And I love Ireland. I love my family there, but it's not America. So when I got back here, my God, I was I was kissing a tarmac at Kennedy Airport and uh, moved on through high school, took the police test, the fire test. Uh, I knew I wanted to be like my daddy. Uh, you know, I was in that firehouse at five years old and I'm looking around with these these giants with mustaches and they're all laughing and joking and they're loving life. And I'm saying, man, I want to be like that. I want to go to work and, and be happy. And uh, I just that was my pursuit and uh, failed out of college, joined the Army Reserves, uh, and then, then switched over to Army National Guard, did eight years, uh, no combat. Initially, uh, military police, then cross-trained as combat medic, Assigned to an armored cav unit. Got on New York City Police uh, after two years of, of hard uh, labor at construction, um, non-union, working like a maniac for six, seven, eight bucks an hour. Got on police department and I loved it. I love being a cop. But I realized really quickly that people don't love cops. And the guy in the rookie class just before me, he he had a bucket of cement dropped on the back of his head and sheared the back of his skull off. And the cruel irony is he's still alive 34 years later in a rehab institute getting cleaned and fed and washed. And uh, the press, press seems to forget him. They don't uh, talk about guys like that did almost two years. NYPD loved it. I was in the middle of the crack wars, uh, in the, in the hood, but I liked walking the old ladies to the market and and shooting hoops with the young kids because I would try to make a difference in their lives and let them know that someone really gave a crap about them and that I was willing to die for them, for their safety. But in my heart, I wanted to be a fireman, uh, follow my dad. One of the happiest days of my life, swearing in as a, as we call it, a pro B firefighter. And, um, I learned horribly within 11 months. Uh, my best friend from the academy, Kevin Kane, former uh, U.S. Army airborne ranger, finished his tour in the army and became a priest. And decided priesthood wasn't for him. He's an Irish Catholic guy, and he wanted to follow his daddy and be a fireman. And uh, 11 months into our tour duty, he was burned to death in a fire. And uh, I went to his his wake and his funeral. Well, our other best friend, Jimmy Young. And Jimmy Young burned to death in 1994. And all of a sudden, I'm saying, man, these things happen in threes. And I'm not embarrassed to say it. It shook me up a bit. It spooked me a bit. 1993, I was in a bad fire truck wreck, I uh, thrown, couldn't move my arms and my legs. I got rushed up to uh, Trauma Center Bellevue. And a heavy rescue just laid interference the whole way up over the Brooklyn Bridge, up the FDR drive, just blown cars out of the way, racing me there. And they, uh, Father Michael Judge, our, our beautiful Catholic chaplain, he responded. He called my mom and my dad. And uh, my father-in-law was also a uh, FDNY firefighter. And my late, uh, he's passed. And now my late, beautiful Irish mother-in-law was just one of my dear friends. And my brother-in-law. And um, I said to Father Judge, it was a Sunday. I said, Father, I missed church. I didn't get there today. I was working uh morning of Sunday into the morning of Monday, 24-hour shift. They said, but I'll try to get the chapel here in the morning. And he smiled. He says, you know what, Nils, he says, um, if you try to tell the good Lord what you're doing tomorrow. He's just going to laugh at you. So how about we get through tonight? So he put his hands on my head and we prayed and I cried because I thought I was paralyzed. And uh, they put me in the tube and I came out. And about six hours later, this doc come in and I started feeling tingling in my my feet and my hands. And he said, look, I can't see what's wrong. He says, there's a bunch of swelling uh on the impact but there's no break you're you're probably going to be fine it's just going to take a day it's a stinger it's it's swollen so sure enough I got out of there four days later and uh went back to duty in a couple couple weeks after that and you know thinking my career was over and man it was another rebirth it just uh it started all over again but five years later I was in another uh incident I was in a collapse and I went into another CAT scan and the doc says hey the hell are you doing on a job man what are you doing walking around and working out you know whatever i said what do you mean sir he says you've got a full fracture of cervical seven in, in in your column he said but it's all filled in with arthritis and 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 you know he goes did did you get a real bad crushing injury i said well i was in a wreck what they told me there was nothing and uh i said doc you have faith and he goes oh yeah i said well father michael judge put his hands on me and he went okay yeah, we're good. Go back to work. And uh, so Father Judge was my bud. I went to the first bombing in 1993 uh, after they tried to take it down the first time. I was with this beautiful soul of a man named Hank Miller. He was the senior man in the crew. And much like the military, they they marry you up to a senior guy to keep, under, they keep you under their wing, so you don't get hurt. You don't wander off. You don't do too much without knowing too much. And he looked around and it was, was the aftermath. And he said, hey, kid, you know, they, they did it wrong. He said they blew it up here in the middle and, and it held up. He says, but next time they're going to come back and they're going to do it in a corner. And he said they'll, they'll drop it to Canal Street, which is a half mile up the street. And, um, you know, I left that day thinking, wow, you know, this is kind of deep what he's saying. And in 1994, they had a manual with uh, a target on the World Trade Center that said, not a matter of if, matter of when, be ready. And it was for our high-rise training operations. Well, one of the cruel ironies on the morning of 2001, September 11th, Hank Miller was a senior man again. And the young man under his charge that morning was this beautiful young guy, Dennis O'Berg Jr. And his father, Dennis O'Berg Sr., is uh, one of the men who, aside from my dad, who did a damn good job, one of the men who taught me to be a man and a fireman. And Dennis senior's beautiful young son was killed with Henry Miller. Henry Miller prophesied. He knew they were coming back. He just knew it. And 50 yards from them was my childhood best friend, John Sharp. And John and I were, we were buds, man. John was a tough, tough guy with a soft edge and, uh, he was on shift. I was off shift that morning. I was, I was working my moonlight driving an oil truck. And, uh, I got home four days, four days after everything was going on. And my wife said, well, we got some good news. So I'm having a baby, which was our third. And I said, Oh my God, that's a gift from God. I said, but John, John's wife's having a, his third baby too, but he's dead. you will never see him. And, uh, the kids were born three days apart, May of 02. And, um, there's a lot of guilt with that. I love my beautiful little Catherine. She's just a gift from God. I call her my 9-11 miracle because if I didn't get home, I would never would have seen her. And now she's just this beautiful, intelligent young woman, 19 years old. And my friend's son, John Jr., is you a know, good young man, but never even met his daddy. And uh, it's kind of upsetting, but I was blessed that morning. I, I was off duty. I raced in uh, for my side job, for my moonlight and uh, much like the military, you know, you have uh, orders and change of command, and you just can't kind of run into battles because you, no one will know you're you're there. And and if you get hurt or lost or captured or whatever, no one's looking for you. Yeah. So the city gave a recall order, which means all police, fire, EMS personnel were obligated to go to their command immediately. That we were under a terrorist attack. I'd seen the first plane uh, across the harbor, the burning tower. And I said, ah, oh, it's probably a Learjet. It's probably some rich dude who wanted a picture. And the pilot got too close and he veered into the building. And, uh, you know, I know it sounds like another day in New York, but, you know, they didn't want us racing in. You know, the on-duty platoon is a couple thousand guys. So they got enough to handle it. But all of a sudden, that second plane hit. And I knew I knew we were under attack. So it got to my command. I called in to hire command and they said uh, 114, my truck that morning with Dennis Oberg Sr. at the command of it, they already left on a dispatch, they're gone, they're on the way to Manhattan. We were in Brooklyn, which is probably about eight, nine miles away, uh, still part of the city. And um, they had given out a, a, an equivalent initially of a tent alarm assignment, which meant probably about 100 fire trucks, minimal, 150 fire trucks and uh, 500 personnel. So um, anyway, we got in and, uh, and the chief said, OK, when you get 12 guys, uh, have whoever takes over command, check in on the radio, take a radio, get whatever gear you can, commandeer a city bus and uh, get to get to Manhattan. So there was threats of the uh, battery tunnel being blown up on a secondary uh, device. And some young firefighter named Steven Siller, who had five children, he raced with his pickup to the mouth of the tunnel and he stopped from going in. And uh, so he took his fire gear, his coat, his helmet, his you know everything he had—about 60 pounds of gear. He ran two and a half miles through the tunnel to meet up with his. Uh, co- Stephen didn't make it home either, and his brother is the gentleman. from to Towers Foundation, which takes care of all of our Gold Star families and first responder families that have lost their loved ones to to their jobs and to the horribly wounded military combat and first responder horribly injured they they all get homes thanks to the memory of steven and his beautiful brother frank so we proceeded the city bus uh, this gentleman john he, he wouldn't give us the bus he said he had to stay with it he's a city bus driver we didn't want him risk in his life but he was brave he said i'm sorry i have to do it and as we got to the brooklyn bridge the tower the second tower came down and uh we were kind of overcome with guilt because now we, we were late for the battle, right? We missed it. And our guys got shot up. And, uh, I was just some heavy shit because I felt like I failed my man, my my buddy, my John, my best buddy, all these guys that, that just taught me about life, about being a man, being a good man. And they were all gone. And, uh, we got over there and it was just hell. It was, it was a scene from war. And, you know, I was only a weekend warrior for eight years and, and I had no combat. Uh, we were just about to go over in the first Iraqi war and we got pulled back. So I never did see that type of uh, arena. But when we got off the bus over to Brooklyn Bridge and it was just this huge pile of it looked like the end of the world, like a, you know these zombie apocalypse movies that they seem to have on every week now. And then there was fighter just, just screaming overhead. And I'm saying, wow. We, we were at war and there was reports that other planes were going to come in and there were secondary devices planted and we were to be on high alert for, for anything that just looked out of the ordinary. And uh, there was there was not enough equipment. Uh, we weren't prepared. The city didn't learn their lesson after 1993. And uh, we didn't have spare fire trucks. We didn't have spare scot mass tools. It would be like saying send in a couple thousand extra troops to a battle, but uh, we can't give you a weapon. So we did our best. And uh, that first night, you know, uh, we were all doing search grids, just certain areas, you know, because we couldn't commit everybody to one specific pile. And I was off to the side with this older fireman from my, uh, my father's old truck, 172. And we were about 100, 200 yards away from the, the main focus at the time was the two police officers from the Port Authority police force that were still trapped. Uh, from what I believe they were the last two human beings taken out of there alive. And we went off to the side and he said, hey, brother, what do you hear? And I said, well, I hear like it sounds like sand coming down a dune. Uh, and that was all the just pulverized cement just just, just tapering down every couple of minutes. And I heard hissing from the gas lines and the water pipes. And I yeah, so I said, well, I hear the, I hear the gas lines. Are here. He goes, no, no, but what else do you hear? And I said, nothing. And all of a sudden, he pointed over, and there was a lady's high heel shoe, and two foot away was a lady's pocketbook. And he said, "Where are they?" And I said, well, "What do you mean?" He said, "Where are the people attached to these items?" And I didn't have an answer. And he said, "Brother, they're all polarized. Look what it did to the building. You think we're going to find anybody?" And you know, Marcus, he was he was right. I mean, there was only 200, I believe, in 90 human beings fully intact that were actually retrieved from that disaster that that place of evil and um half of those souls of the 200 2977 souls have not even been identified by their dna because there were just wasn't enough of it to identify they just did identify two more souls two weeks two weeks ago two days before nine eleven, because thankfully science is improving and DNA uh, technology is improving, so 20 years after this horrific attack on us, these two families just just were able to get closure. So about four or five in the morning, uh, my my platoon commander at the time, Lieutenant Brian Gorman, he we were just we were just done, and at a point in time, you're just physically shot; you're you're useless actually to the mission. We couldn't breathe we couldn't see we couldn't stand half the time we were just so messed up and he said guys we're going to regroup we need to go back we need to get some medical help we need supplies we'll, we'll come back in a few hours but we need to go so we did and we took a bus back through that tunnel and i didn't even know at that time that Stephen had run through it 18 hours earlier um And uh, we got our medical aid. And as we were walking up the hill from where the bus dropped us off to the firehouse, one of the older guys, Danny says, we're all dead. And I said, no, Dan, we made it, man. I says, I says, the brothers are gone. I says, "But we need to, we need to find them and bring them home to bury them. But we made it. He says, no, you don't get it, man. He says, do you feel like you just swallowed a box of razor blades? And I said, yes, sir. I said, I can't breathe. I said, he goes. We've been poisoned. We're all gonna die. Well, out of that crew of twenty that morning, ten of us have cancer. Uh, one of my buddies, Mike, has has had three bouts of bladder cancer and two rare leukemias. Uh, another another Mike. We have a lot of Mikes in the fire department. That uh Mike, my other Mike, he uh, he's had two cancers. He had thyroid, and then he had a huge tumor wrapped around his aorta, cancerous tumor and we're all calming down with wacky stuff. Um 2011 I'll fast forward a little bit. I I, I well yeah I want to go back to these other guys cuz it's isn't about me. So we went back and uh we just did what we could and and, and after about 4 or 5 days the, the fire ground and the police commander just said guys look um just as now a recovery uh there's there's no more viable souls being taken out of here they're all gone. And uh, it was strange because on the second or third day, this gentleman wanted a federal uh, dog spy. I don't know if he was, I think he was a cadaver dog. And he got a hit and this man told us, he said, we need you to dig this little grid. And we dug a box that was about three foot wide by five foot deep, uh, three by five by about three, four foot deep. What it took about five, six hours because it was all covered in jagged rebar and key decking and steel and then there was dust and concrete so it wasn't like you just dug a hole and, and quickly got to the bottom so after this five hours of just digging like maniacs cutting with saws and torches and pulling stuff by hand the dog got a hit again and he says you got it and then we looked down and it was just this little thing of human remains that you could not even identify as human And I said, sir, are you fucking with us? And he said, excuse me. I said, sir, what are you talking about? That is not a human being. He took my shoulder. He said, sir, I need to explain something to you. I'm in a different type of business. He said, you all are used to finding full bodies intact, crushed in a car or burned up in a fire or whatever it is. You know, we pull them out of the river or the bay. He goes, you're not going to find bodies here. Please take this and put it in a hazmat bag and tag it where we are, because trust me, someone is going to identify their loved one from this. And at first, I I didn't really see the significance of that. But then when I saw the suffering of the families that were so desperately just looking to find something of their loved one, I felt like I completed my mission that day. And strange enough, a few months later, this beautiful young man named Fitzroy Haynes, Jr., Fitzy, his dad, was a Jamaican immigrant who joined the United States Marine Corps. And Fitzy followed his daddy. And the morning of 9-11, it was Fitzy's first shift on the department out of training school. And he was assigned to South Street Seaport Firehouse, Tile out of 15, Engine 4. And an older gentleman named Tom Kelly. the, The call came in at about 10 to 9. Your shift officially starts at 9, but the courtesy is you always give a guy a relief and you say, hey, hey Marcus, you go home, man. I, I got this. And Tom took the took Fitzy and he physically put him in an office and said, you do not move. You do not go anywhere. You man the radio and you man the phone. You're not going to this. Well Tom Kelly is on audio with Lieutenant Joseph Levy from Tower ladder 15. And it was just like another day at the races. They were telling command what they had. They're on the 78th floor. There's multiple victims. There's multiple dead victims. We need five truck companies for search to break down doors into areas where people are trapped. And we need five engine companies to operate hose lines. We think we can get a handle on this. We just need the manpower. And Chief Palmer from Battalion 7, I believe it was, he he, he gave him the order. Okay, 10-4, I, I, I hear your order. I'm going to convey it. Because we, we had bad radios at the time because um, that wasn't a priority for the city. You know, firemen's radios didn't really matter so much. So they hardly worked. And uh, he got the order off that they needed to the help. And five minutes later, there was radio silence because the building collapsed and they were in it. And Fitzroy sat and listened to that radio and he realized, oh, my God, this man just threw me off the truck and he's dead and I'm sitting here. What do I do? Well, three, four months later, Fitz, he was on a search crew and he found a little sneaker. And he thought someone was messing with us because there was no children reported in the tower that morning. But there was a three-year-old child on the plane with her mom. And she's actually related to a friend of mine. They were from Ireland. And my buddy grew up just near my mom. And he was waiting for them to come back from California to stay at their house. And the strange irony with that is, Fitz, he saw the shoe. And he said to the lieutenant, hey, boss, I think there's something in the shoe. But why would there be a child's shoe? They must be messing with us. And the boss said, Fitz, hold on. Dog came over, human remains. They bagged it. It turned out it was that little child's shoe. And Fitzy, he died of a heart attack in 2011 because of the poisons we breathed in. And his young heart gave out at 40 years old. So there's just so many connections and interconnections of just these, these really beautiful, great guys that, um, that just gave everything. And then the cancers, they started really picking up in 04, 05. 2006, the first official death was finally recognized, Detective James Adroga. He was dying of advanced lung disease. There was no hope. And James spent basically six straight months at the landfill at the old garbage dump where they sent the, the remains of the debris, which basically intermixed with that, was human beings. And James was there to try to painfully find all the human remains and identify them. Well, from his tour of duty there, he, he basically got this very rare and advanced lung disease, and it was killing him. So his doctor told him to grind up his pain pills and snort them or drink them or eat them for immediate pain relief. So he did just that and followed that order. He died a week later, and the New York City Medical Examiner, under the orders of the mayor at the time, said, we found talcum, which is the pill liner's. And when you grind those up, they get stuck in the lung lining. So he said, this man did not die a hero. He died of an opiate overdose, no benefits for his family. So Jimmy's father, Joseph Shudroga, who was a retired police chief, went wild when he heard this mayor disgustingly say his son was not a hero. And he married up with a gentleman named John Field from the Feel Good Foundation. And John is an old soldier. And he was a construction and demolition expert who was helped, Who was brought in to help dismantle what was left of the debris. And a week into the operation, he had 8,000 pounds of steel crush his foot and rip half of it off and ended up for six months in a hospital with sepsis. And when he got out, nobody wanted to pay the bill because that's what started happening. The games began. So all the politicians that lined up on the West Side Highway for a mile south and a mile north and with all the folks 9 912 was actually a beautiful day in America because we were unified and people flew the flag and they didn't look at faces and facades. They looked in at souls, right? They weren't doing all this bullshit that we're hung up on now, judging each other and staring at. They looked into each other's souls and said, I'm American, you're American, and we need to support each other. Well, these politicians They were so fast to get that selfie and the never forget hashtag. And they wanted to be seen with a rescuer because it looked good at the time. And they do the same thing to the military. Well, all of a sudden, two, three, four years later, when guys start dropping like flies, they're nowhere to be found. So John Field ends up with $600,000 in medical bills. And he marries up with Chief Zedroga, who wanted to salvage the name of his hero son. And they went on a mission to Washington. And they formed John Field's army and these two other beautiful souls, firefighter Ray Pfeiffer and City Police Detective Luis Alvarez. Well, they were both terminally ill with cancer in wheelchairs on oxygen, but they would go down there repeatedly to shame these politicians who would hide. I was there with them a few times, who would run and hide in closets and cloakrooms like cowards because they didn't sign on to the legislation we were trying to get passed to just pay our medical bills. That's all we were asking. And John Field would chase them down. And it was actually comical to see these alleged supposed leaders cowering in a closet, hiding from this man on a mission. And you know, it's funny, my my Irish grandma Nora, God rest her, she used to always say, "Eh, those politicians, they're all like dirty diapers. They're full of shit and they stink. You know, Marcus, I learned it firsthand. Grandma Nora was so right. They were such Phony cowards. We had one congressman who was a former police officer out West California who prided himself on saying he was a cop from a busy, busy ghetto area and he was there to help save the people. This guy wouldn't even sign on to the legislation because he said it didn't confront his district. But we reminded him that 10 of his officers from LA County were also dying of 9-11-related illnesses. Because they came by plane, by bus, by RV and van to help us. So one of the cops who was dying got up out of his wheelchair and said, Sir, cut the politics and the bullshit and do the right thing and sign on to this thing now. We're dead man walking and we don't want to strap our families with millions of dollars in bills. So by the grace of God, John Field and the actor John Stewart got on later on in time and he really shamed them in a congressional hearing. We now have coverage. Our bills are paid. It makes me so blessed and thankful because I'm one of those guys. In 2011, I came down with an incurable leukemia. It's technically incurable on the books. And the fire department picked up something was wrong. I was telling them for two years, I'm done. I'm not right. And in 2010, they gave me a medical. But I was temporarily sent, as they call it, to bad lieutenant camp because I had a moment with an upper level supervisor who, in the end, apologized and said he was wrong. His ego got in the way, but he's the boss. So I got sent to bad lieutenant camp, which means you go all over the city for six months. And I know, you know, the fellas up in Harlem, 43 and 53, where Mike Riley was was well loved. Yes, sir. And uh, I passed through everywhere because I was in trouble, but it was okay because I got to see guys I hadn't seen in years. It was great. It was like a reunion tour, except for one thing. I had a medical during that time and being the uh, not so efficient bureaucracy that they sometimes can be, FDMY Medical sent my results, but they never got to me and I had cancer. So a year later, they picked up on it again and now it was worse. So they pulled me off the truck and said, you can bleed to death immediately. You have no platelets. I said, okay, then I want treatment. Take me in today. It was a Friday. But the dirty, rotten secret is a lot of the doctors, they like to go out to the Hamptons to the beach on the Fridays in the summer, get out of your traffic. Yeah, don't worry about it. Come in Monday. So I came in Monday and my spleen was about the size of the Rollins football. And I could, I could barely just, I was a mess. And I look at this one doctor who had the duty and he says, yeah. What are you doing here? Just like that. Because a lot of times in the summer, guys, you know, they want a couple extra days to be with their family. You know, yeah, listen, I'm not feeling it today or whatever. I got diarrhea or I got whatever. So I said, well, sir, I says, I'm here because you sent me here. I said, this is my my blood work. They pulled me from the truck. Can you give me an exam? And he said, whoa, 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 Lieutenant, you're mistaking me for your doctor. Who's your doctor? And I said, Dr. So-and-so, who happened to also be in the FDMY but she's my doctor on the outside. He goes, you go see her when you get a chance, but tomorrow you ride a desk because you're on light duty. Because now what they do is to threaten you to go back so they don't have to replace you on overtime. They'll throw you on a desk to speed up your healing, right? I said, sir, I lifted up my shirt and it looked like E.T. wanted to pop out. I said, could you please tell me what's wrong? Look at my spleen. I have no platelets. And he tilts his two fingers back, his thumb and his pinky as if I was drinking. And he goes, whoa, Lieutenant, busy summer. And I went, excuse me, sir. I said, are you judging me? Is that a stereotypical comment? Because I'm Irish and Danish and you're assuming I like to drink. I said, I just spoke to a a medical personnel in my family. And they said, this is indicative of a blood cancer. And he went, oh, we got another WebMD. I went off on this guy. And I said, you know what, you piece of shit. You shouldn't even be a doctor. The XO came running in, another doctor asking me what was wrong. And I said to the doctor, ma'am, can you look at this? And she went, ooh, no platelets. Come on inside. And she kind of gave him the wink, like, you're an asshole. I'll take this. So she said, go get a sonogram, go call your doctor. You need treatment. I said, thank you, ma'am. I appreciate you caring. Well, I did. I went to that doctor. And she said to me right away, well, how's the drinking? I said, well, ma'am, what does that mean? Because, you know, Marcus, unfortunately, a lot of our guys after the horrors of 9-11 and then watching their friends years later just die one a week. Yeah, we did some drinking, right? And some of us went for some counseling to say, hey, I'm having a hard time. I lost all the guys I love, and I'm still here. Can you tell me why? So if you went for counseling, they automatically said you have PTSD. So with that, she says, just go for a sonogram, go for this test, that test, that test. So for three weeks, I'm trying to track her down. She finally says, okay, just come in uh, next week, and we'll figure this out. So now it's almost a month later, and I show up, and uh, I was told she left for the day at 12 o'clock. And I said, well, how's that possible? I have an appointment at one. So I call her XL, her driver, and you are in a restaurant. And I hear the glasses clanking and I says, uh, Tom, i got a big problem. I think I'm dying and the doctor didn't show up. Can you ask her to come back? And he went, oh, shit, today's your appointment? Yeah, today. Well, three hours later, waiting for her, I pass out. I go down. And the charge physician who had a heart and some empathy he coded me and he called 911 and he said to send paramedics, to advanced life support, not the regular EMS, you know, not the routine, just transport to the hospital. This guy, his spleen's going to rupture. He's going out. His blood pressure is 240 over 140. So when struts, this doctor pissed off that she had to come back and do her job and she gets into a fight with me and the paramedic over what's wrong with me. So he explained to her, well, his spleen's about to rupture. She said, oh, that's nothing but drinking. And he said, well, can you explain the blood pressure of 240 over 140? He said his body is going into some sort of shock, something's wrong. She said, oh, that's probably anxiety. He's got PTSD. That, that's what they all do. Well, he overrode her. This wonderful six foot seven tall African-American medic who I work calls with on the street. And when he first saw me, when he responded, he said, Why? He was teasing me. I was red as a, a friggin' tomato. And he says, Oh, man, 114. He goes, You're not one of them surfer dudes down at Rockaway Beach. I'm like, Doc, I'm too fat to fly the surfboard, bro. This is what's wrong. This is my paperwork. So that's why he overruled the doctor. He told me on the way to the hospital in the ambulance, I'm sorry, my brother, but you have cancer. I can't believe this doctor didn't pick up on this, but we're going to do what we can. And as you know, in the, med- in, the in, in the military, we call the medics doc. And I says, doc, thanks for pushing me out of there. Thanks for giving me a chance at least. So I got into the hospital. They did their thing, wanting to know why I wasn't there a month earlier. I said, because I trusted my doctors, which I shouldn't. When the team finally drilled into my head, took out the bullet, arrow, this and that, they said, look, you got here in time. You had about 48 hours to live. But we got the swelling subsided, but we need to do a rapid intervention. We're trying to find the drugs because it's so rare. You have the rarest leukemia that's known to medicine. There's 500 cases in all North America a year, but you're the seventh 9-11 rescuer in six months to to get it. And two guys have already died during the treatment. This isn't good. I said, "Okay, what's my chances? They said, well, leukemia is like a car. It's not it's not like an organ cancer stage one through four. It's like a car and it drives to the edge of the cliff and it goes off. I said, where's my car? They said the front two wheels are dangling and the car starting to tilt. I said, okay, then let's do this. So they had to hit me with two and a half years worth of chemo in these massive bags in seven days and burn out my bone marrow in the hopes that my seedling marrow could regenerate because I wasn't a candidate for, for a uh, transplant or any of that stuff. Thank God since the 10 years since they've, they've improved their medical technology, but the second, my, my nurse, Mike Nunez, who was my my savior, and this other lady from Trinidad, Altagracia, they were my angels on earth. And Mike said to me, he said, look, I have to put on the to This stuff is so caustic that if I get it on your skin or my skin or anything, it will burn through it. I said, then how the hell are you going to put this in my body? He said, well, it does its job that way. He says, it'll, it'll trust me. It'll work. You'll feel like you're burning to death, but you're not.
2: I mean, I've never heard anybody just give the descriptive of burning, burning to death on the inside, but don't worry, you'll be okay.
1: Yeah. And what happened was when he started the IV, it, it it spilled onto the tube and the tube started to smoke. And I said, hold, I said, you're not putting that in me. He said, hold on, let me start it over and let me start a new one. He said, listen to me, those three beautiful kids that were just here praying with you and your wife. He says, if you want to see him again, take this because if you don't, you got about, two days I said okay let's go and within a second Marcus it started and it was like when you drink a whiskey and you feel that burn and it started up my wrist up my shoulder across my shoulders up my head down my body and within 30 seconds I was writhing in pain I saw my beautiful Irish mother-in-law that night she had just passed six months before went to church every day and she was smiling and she said and I said Nan, I want to go home please please tell God I'm done I can't do it I'm weak. I don't have it in me. And she said, no, my boyfriend, she called me her boyfriend. And uh, she said, he's not ready. Just go back with those, that beautiful family. She says, but when he's ready, he'll call. And she faded away. And I fought for my life, Marcus. I I figured after that, I want to live now. If Dan says it's good with God, it's good with God. Because if she's not in heaven, no one is. And I fought my battle and I got out. And a few months later, they told me, You're you're retired, you're out, you can't stay with cancer. I said, Well, you let my dad, you let him work in office, but after 20 years now, you're you're a financial liability. And with the amount of guys getting sick, you you also become, you know, uh like basically they don't want you don't they don't want you on their nickel anymore. When you're retired, you're not their problem. So I'm sure similar to you, you're all in the military, they train you in everything except for how to retire. So I've been searching, I've been wandering. For 10 years, God, please tell me what I'm supposed to do. And I got an opportunity from some kind folks in our light labs. They heard a podcast. Uh, I had reached out to a gentleman who gives millions and millions of dollars to cancer research. And I thanked him. It was gentleman, David Koch, who since passed away. And I said, sir, I want nothing. I just want to say thank you. You helped save my life. Your, your donations to research. My oncologist studied under those grants, and he saved my life thank you. So someone did a podcast on it about being grateful, being thankful, the gift of a second chance. So these folks from Iron Light Labs said, hey, we want to do a tribute to the folks at 9-11 who've given back, some who have died, some who haven't. And we just want to tell the stories because we feel that it's being eradicated from American history. And, you know, Marcus, sad enough, 26 states in the United States have no curriculum to teach 9-11. And many, many districts around the nation, it's actually deemed offensive. It cannot be taught. Now, I don't know how the hell 9/11 is offensive to anyone in America. It's offensive to my friends who died in their families, and if it's offensive to gentlemen like you and your brave warrior brothers who gave everything for this country. But how the hell is it offensive? Just, just beyond beyond belief for me. So. I know I sound fired up, and it's actually the opposite of what I'm trying to put out. I'm trying to put out some some love and some kindness. I want to bring back the unity of 912 and say, folks, America is not perfect. It has its bumps, its bruises, its blemishes. But trust me, I've lived elsewhere. There is no better place. And in honesty, sometimes our history, maybe it's not perfect. Maybe there's some bad elements of it, but it's our history, and it needs to be taught. So what we're trying to do is in a kind, gentle way, get these stories out there. We're trying to support Tunnel to Towers and get some awareness for them on their mission and and just spread some good messages and good education. And the podcast is called 2420podcast.com. And so far, we've had some really good uh, feedback. Folks say it's it's making sense. And uh, it's one of the highest honors in my life. To speak about my brave friends, because they were just truly the best—the best that this country has to offer.
2: We're, I'm that's, sorry. We're we're, we're, guess, di- we're, di- we're digesting all that. That was.
1: I'm so, sorry. No, I, I-, I was rapid fire, and you know, Marcus, it's funny because when you're in remission, it's an elusive beast. You don't know how much time you actually have. So I have this constant fear that I'm not going to have enough time. So I talk fast and I do things fast and I, you know, and I have to stop myself and go. Wait a minute, you're, you're here. No, slow we, down. No, we need. And also, we, I realize we need know, the guys show like you. So long.
2: Yeah, no, no, no. So. We we need we need heroes like you to 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 keep to keep that our history alive and share the stories well, of those that fought so bravely inside our borders. You know, we we talk about our veterans and our first responders. Uh, most people can't appreciate. You know, you guys deploy out your front door every day. I say that as much as I can. So,
1: I mean, yeah,
2: you're 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 our warriors out there, just right outside.
1: Well, the... well, they're my they're my heroes. I'm not a hero. My friends were heroes. I'm just a guy who did, did his job, and I've been blessed with a pension, and I've been blessed with remission and a family. But you know, Marcus, my heroes, the guys protecting me right now in, in, in Central Tennessee, they make 17 bucks an hour, my sheriffs in my county. And, and they ride by themselves in a car. And I'm sure it's very similar where you are in Texas. Guys are on solo patrol. And then they pull up on four, five, six bad dudes. Right? And you know more than anyone in this world what it's like to be outnumbered. And God bless you for your your sacrifice and your bravery. And these poor guys are out there. And they didn't pay you guys nothing, right? This this beautiful Marine who just passed away two weeks ago saying she had her dream job holding an Afghani baby. She was an E1. What is she making, 22 grand? But she's working 90 hours a week, so she's good for six bucks an hour. And she couldn't wait to go down to the recruiter and sign up, right? And it's the same thing with all these heroes that are turning out on a daily basis, strapping on bulletproof vests. And, and fire helmets and military helmets and flak jackets, and, and they're making nothing. And they're still breaking down the doors to the recruiters to take those jobs. And and the kicker is they're just not getting the respect that they used to. And it's so sad. I just saw a video last night of these two officers in Florida, and a guy runs up and smashes him in the head with a brick and tries to tear the other officer's eye out. And he bites through his arm, literally through into the flesh. And he's charged with assault. So this one cop's probably going to lose his eye in his career. And this other guy's going to have brain damage. And this gentleman's going to get out of jail in, oh, two weeks. There's something wrong. And, and it, it has to change. If it doesn't, we're on a collision course with, with the empire just ending. Yeah. I mean, we have to stop rewarding the bad guys. And again, I'm not going to pull politics because it, it sets people off. But after a while... It's like if we reward our children for bad behavior, what are they going to learn? Oh, I, I guess it's good to be bad. But if we, if we teach our children right like our parents taught us and teach them that there's ramifications and there's outfall, and if you don't take responsibility and accountability, you will pay the price with a shitty life. And, you know, it's funny, like what really upsets me is what is now deemed a man in America, right? So you got guys running around. No one wants to be a father anymore. Just be a baby daddy. Just have a baby and just y'all you know, take off and maybe maybe catch up with him when he's 22 and successful. And and how about being a father and a husband and a decent contributor to society instead of being acting like a child? And yet, those are the people we're glorifying in society, and it, it's troubling for an old guy like me. You know, and and I'm really hoping that our project can say, maybe it'll strike a nerve in a few people. It's like when my son and I saw you in 2017 on a Patriots tour. This beautiful young man, 21, well raised, but when he heard you speak, it struck a spark and it motivated him so hard to study harder and be, you know, he wants to be a pilot because when he heard your determination and, and, that's that's what we're not hearing anymore. We're not hearing the stories of the good guys. We're worshiping the knuckleheads. And and that's that's just baffling to me. I I don't understand that and it, and that has to start changing as well.
2: It does. It does. Hey, w- before we wrap up Neils and and thank you for digging into those into those pieces of your life. What you've got so many what give me give our listeners a one Neils Never quit advice. Give me a piece of advice. What that was my our, our listeners can take away.
1: You know, Marcus, some people get a little scared away when you preach faith and you preach old school values. And I I draw it back to I watched my father battle cancer and he never complained and he did it stoically. And I watched my beautiful Irish mother do her best to raise us on a fireman's salary. I I say to my kids, look up from your phone, look at people's eyes and look up to your creator above and be grateful and be thankful. And just what I understood is at the very, very worst, when I would turn it over to God and say, please, God, walk me through this, regardless if I end up with you in heaven or staying here on earth, please walk me through this. And I think what happens is our stubborn pride of We always think we know better as human beings gets in the way. We don't. We're not in control. You know, and that's what I think we just need to do is come back to faith, come back to family. But most of all, be grateful for every day. You know, I thank God for every day I had before cancer. I thought my life was so good. But now I'm like a little kid on Christmas morning. I'm alive for another day, another sunrise, another sunset. So my whole thing is be grateful. Be faithful. Just be a good person, and it will all work out for you. Trust me. I, I've seen it happen for a lot of people, and that's if, if if I had my way and my say in the world, that's what I'd be preaching. That's great. But bro. I really appreciate you guys taking the time. And I'm, no. I'm sorry I hogged the conversation. I just no, that's had that's a why we ha- no, that's why we have you on
2: here, buddy. Uh, yeah. We want to hear about you and, and, and what and what you've seen and done, and 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 bless you for doing what you're doing now with your podcast and celebrating those lives. And thank you again for coming and spending spending time with us today.
1: Well, sir, bless you. Thank you for what you've done for our great country. And thank all of your fellow warriors, because you know what? We would not have our freedom. You know, guys like you, they're willing to give up every one of their tomorrows. So we all have our today. That's so beautiful. All it takes is people just saying, hey, man, thank you. Stop a cop. Stop a medic. Stop a soldier, Marine, Navy, you know, a, a Navy SEAL or, you know, a a sailor or or an airman and just say, Hey, thank you. Yeah. And they'll know, they'll know exactly what you mean. Marcus, Andrew, thank you, sirs, And I'd like to send you guys t-shirts. I'll get your information and uh, be my honor for you to have them. And uh, thanks for what you're doing and God bless you and God bless America.
0: God bless you, brother. Take care. Thank you. All right, sirs. Thanks. Thank you guys for listening to another episode of the Team Never Quit podcast. If today's story inspired you, please share it with a friend. 20for20podcast.com is where you can listen to Neil's podcast. It is incredibly produced. The stories that he's sharing are just incredible. It's fascinating. And the fact that he's keeping the memories alive and not letting them fade away and letting people just feel that same feeling that they felt September 12th That is what it's all about. So make sure you guys support his podcast. If you like our show, make sure you follow us. Make sure to share the episodes with a friend. Make sure you subscribe. All those things that podcasters ask you to do. If you'd like, follow us on social media, teamneverquit.com slash social Marcus Morgan and myself. We're all out there doing our thing. Make sure you subscribe anywhere you get your shows. Get out your podcast gear. Show people that you will never quit. We will see you guys next week.